whatever, just go away. Thank you. I'm kidding. I kid. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see you all today. So uh, just to piggyback just real quick um, on, on what she was saying, one of the things that, that I consider about our, our children's church ministry, based on, on all of the uh, research that's been done here in this country, uh, most people find their relationship with God is traced back to their formative years in a, in a Sunday school type setting. And I really look at this as one of the leading edges of our outreach program. This is where we get a chance to demonstrate and communicate and even influence people towards the values of the kingdom. So really pray about that and and consider that because that's an important aspect of why we gather as a community and what we're doing here. But on to what we're going to be talking about. Anybody ever been involved in in an argument or a like maybe a a debate with with somebody who seems to be very closed-minded? Anybody ever go through that? I know it's a rarity, but uh, someone, you know, you're talking with someone and their their mind is so made up that they absolutely refuse to listen to anything that doesn't conform to what they already believe. And that can be frustrating, right? I mean, you know, you just feel like you don't even know what to do. Closed-minded people can be found everywhere. They're in politics, they're in science, they're in the art world. Do you know where you don't find a closed-minded person? Well, that's true, but there's some other place. Huh? A graveyard, okay. You never find a closed-minded person in the mirror. No one ever sees themselves as being closed-minded. I'm not closed-minded. I just know what the facts are. I just know, you know, I see it the way it is. And it's those who disagree with me that are closed-minded. That's the way that works. Listen, this is just a strange thing about being a human being, and especially being a human being who holds to ideals and convictions and beliefs. It's, it's a difficult thing. It's not easy to navigate through being faithful to what we do believe but being open-minded enough to be taught and led and learn a- as we go. And it's, like I said, it's, it's tricky. Now, we're going to be reading about some closed-minded people today and the trying circumstances that they create. And we're going to consider how we, as followers of Jesus, followers, we could say, of Jesus' way, can learn how to respond in those trying times when we're dealing with, with situations where everything seems to be closed off to any further learning. We're going to continue through our reading of the Gospel of Luke today. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app, uh, if you'll go to Luke chapter 22. If you've been here over the last month, you'll realize that Luke chapter 22 is a really long chapter. We're finally getting to the end of it today, but it's taken the better part of a month. Uh, We've followed Jesus and his disciples to the Mount of Olives where Jesus prayed alone and he exhorted his disciples to be alert and pray. But even as he was saying this, a group uh, consisting of temple guards and religious leaders showed up to arrest him. And that's what we looked at last week. We considered how we as Christians should respond when it seems like evil has the upper hand in, in life and in this world. Now today we're going to read about Jesus' trial before the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. 
And in this trial, we're going to see on display some of the worst motivations for religion and social interaction, things like cruelty and pride and a love for power. But before all of that, we're going to read about Peter, the rock, who, who crumbles under the weight of the potential threat to his own safety. It's all very dramatic, it's all very powerful, and it provides us with an opportunity to examine our own responses when we go through trying times and when we have to deal sometimes with closed-minded people. So if you're there in Luke chapter 22, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 54. It says, So they arrested him, him being Jesus, and led him to the high priest's home. And Peter followed at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it, and Peter joined them there. Okay, again, Luke's account of this is rather brief, but all of the Gospels give us this detail of Peter following Jesus' captors and slipping into the courtyard and trying to blend in. And for me, I've got to wonder, what is Peter doing there? Like, why is he here? What, what's, what's happening? What is going through his mind? Does he still have that sword he had earlier? Is he thinking he's going to, you know, bust Jesus out of jail or, or something? Or is he just following along just to see how these events unfold, what happens to Jesus? I strongly suspect Peter didn't know why he was there. He just was so used to following Jesus wherever he went that even in a situation like this, he just keeps on following him even after he's arrested. Now, he didn't do it well. I mean, because, you know, he's keeping a safe distance between them, and he does his best to try to blend in with Jesus' captors. But still, he followed Jesus to this dangerous place, and that says something about him, to me anyway. Anyway, the story goes on. Verse 56. A servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, she said, this man was one of Jesus' followers. But Peter denied it. Woman, he said, I don't even know him. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, you must be one of them. No, man, I'm not. I don't know how to read that. uh, (laughs) Peter retorted. Verse 59, about an hour later, someone else insisted, this must be one of them because he's a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter Suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind before the rooster crows tomorrow morning. You'll deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. And we'll stop there for a moment. So the evening has come full circle for Peter. From Jesus' prediction of what it was that he was going to do to the sound of the rooster crowing to Jesus giving him that look It's just as powerful as any Shakespearean play that you could read. And a a lot has been taught about this event. It's, It's one of these so familiar events, it's kind of hard to know exactly what to do with it in terms of sharing something, because I'm sure all of us have heard many, many sermons uh, about this. But what's important to me, I'm glad it's not the end of Peter's story. In John's gospel, after the resurrection, Jesus restores Peter and he commissions him to take care of the church, to look after his followers. But here, at this point, we've got to recognize that this part of Peter's story is repeated in all of the gospels. So there's something here for us to learn. There's something we're supposed to take away from this. And one thing that I believe we can take away from this example is, 
is that in these trying times that we go through, let's resist the temptation to disassociate from Jesus. Peter was trying to follow at a safe distance, probably wanting you know, to see how this would all pan out. And, and when our faith is being tested, whether we're being closed in by people who might be hostile to us or whether we've just struggled with our own failures, when times are difficult, that is not the time to start turning fatalistic and, and back away from any belief that Jesus is redeeming our situations. You know, things start going badly and sometimes we just want to kind of go numb and just bail out. Let's quit following Jesus and all of this stuff and sort of just drift away, maybe glancing over from a distance to see what's going on. And listen, as a pastor, I have seen this happen more times than I ever really want to remember. Someone disappears from gathering with us and I'll reach out to find out what's going on and I'll hear things like, well, you know, I'm just going through some stuff. I'm trying to sort some things out. You know, I'll, I'll get back to my faith when I get this stuff all worked out. And that's the last thing we want to do. That's not how we want to go about this. To, to bail out on the only one who could actually truly stabilize us. Sometimes, like in Peter's case, we feel like following Jesus is the reason that we have trouble in our life. I, you know, I wouldn't be in this mess if it weren't for the fact that I'm trying to follow God's ways in this or that. So it seems like in our thinking, the solution would be to back away from that till the pressure comes off, till these things get alleviated, you know, re- re- reduce God's claims on our lives just to get a little bit of normalcy back into our situations. But we have to remember there, there's an enemy at work in all of these things. And, and, and when we start thinking, maybe I just need a break from this whole Christianity and church thing, we need to realize that really the resolution that we think it is is not found in that. that that's not a way to, to fix things as much as it is a way to avoid the commitments that we've made in our hearts. It's not a redeemed heart telling us to back away from Jesus, to back away from following his way and his, his, his pattern for life. Let's not listen to that. Let's keep close to the only one who can redeem the stuff we're going through. This doesn't negate the reality that there was danger there for Peter. It doesn't negate that this was difficult or hard. And it didn't fix it for him just to back away from Jesus or to bail out on this whole thing. Honestly, it made everything worse for him internally because he leaves broken and hurt by all of this. So learning from his miscues when we're facing our own trials, when life is challenging and the world around us seems hostile towards us, that's the time to stick close to Jesus. Now, as I said before, it's not the end of Peter's story. Life is washable, and there are good things waiting for him on the other side of the resurrection. And I love the detail in this that Jesus looked at him. And I don't even know how that happened. Like, he's out in the courtyard. Jesus is inside. But maybe, you know, the the homes over there did have large uh, portico windows and things like that. Maybe he was inside and was able to glance outside and see Peter out there. Either way, however that worked out, he looked at Peter. He didn't shake his head in disgust, saying, I told you this is what you were going to do. No, he looked right at him. He didn't look away from him. He looked at him because his love for Peter 
remained consistent. His love for us remains consistent wherever we find ourselves. Even if we find ourselves in a position of backing away from him, his love for us remains consistent. All right, we'll move from Peter in the courtyard to the activities inside the high priest's house. Verse 63, the guards in charge of Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and said, prophesy to us, who hit you that time? And they hurled all sorts of terrible insults at him. Okay, we'll stop there for a moment. We go from from denial and disassociation to outright mocking and physical abuse uh, of Jesus. Now, Luke is mercifully brief in this account, but the guards doling out this abuse would likely be referring to the temple guards who were there to arrest him. And we pointed out before that they were soldiers that were hired by the Sanhedrin, the, the religious rulers of Israel, to keep order in the temple district. So if there was any kind of ruckus or anything going on in the temple district, they could go put an end to it. And they had that permission under Rome to do that sort of thing. But this abuse that they're doling out here is not likely part of their duties. And the sad reality of this, don't know if you know this, but the sad reality is these guards were made up of priests and Levites. In order to be one of the temple guards, they had to come from the family that God had charged with watching over the spiritual well-being of Israel. That's who they were. That's why it's significant that they're ridiculing the idea that he's a prophet. And they're, they're mocking all of that because they, you know, they're abusively mocking what they themselves don't believe in. Their convictions run the opposite of that. But here we see that they've weaponized their convictions and they're abusing him. And it's a disturbing picture, but it's something that we can use as a criterion when we're trying to understand any troubled or tense situation that's arising. And that is in trying times, injustice and abuse are on the opposite side of Jesus. Jesus and his followers are not in the position, nor are they ever in the position throughout the entire narration of the gospel of being mockers or abusing others or ignoring justice. Jesus is on the receiving end of that all through the gospel accounts. But those who were supposed to be the good guys, the temple guard, the people that were there to look after the the well-being of the people of Israel. In our world, that would be like saying a bunch of church deacons had been given police badges. And this is what they were doing with it. They were the ones beating and ridiculing Jesus. They were priests. And I'm sure they totally believed that what they were doing was God's work. Just as I believe all the religious leaders thought they were doing what was in God's best interests. But that self-assured sense of rightness led them to a place where they also felt comfortable dispensing pain and ridicule in their zeal for God. And I just want us to take note that Jesus is on the opposite side of that language and that kind of behavior. And I just believe it's a good baseline. When Jesus taught us, he taught us to be meek and peacemakers and willing to lay down our lives for others. Even if our intentions are good, like the temple guards may have had good intentions, if we're using the world's patterns of rage and mockery and violence, excusing injustice in order to advance our position, we are not on the same side as Jesus. 
At least not if we're following the example that's presented to us here in this gospel. And I think it's something we have to take note of as we carry out our lives in following him. Okay, moving on to the trial. Verse 66. At daybreak, the elders of the people assembled, including the leading priests and teachers of religious law. Jesus was led before this high council and they said, Tell us, are you the Messiah? But he replied, If I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I ask you a question, you won't answer me. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated in the place of power at God's right hand. Then they all shouted, So you're claiming to be the Son of God? And he replied, You say that I am. Why do we need any other witnesses? They said, We ourselves heard him say it. And that's where we're going to stop today. I know it's a cliffhanger, but you come back next week and find out where it all goes. But, but we need to, to keep the context of what's happening here firmly in mind. This isn't, you know, this isn't a meeting with the local homeowners association or, or something like this. This is, this is the Sanhedrin. And it's not a stretch to say this is akin to being called in to a congressional hearing about something. This is a huge deal that's happening here. And here's the thing. We're, we're supposed to catch the irony of this. There are multiple violations of Jewish law that occur in this trial as it's recorded in the Gospels. For starters, right in the Mishnah, it says that a capital case has to be held during the day. And if someone is found guilty, they have to sleep on it and reconvene in order to pass sentence the next day so that they've had plenty of time to think this all over. Now, it says in our text here, they wait to assemble the whole Sanhedrin until daybreak. But we know from the other gospel accounts that an entire trial took place overnight, including witnesses that were brought forth in all of that in the high priest's house. Also, capital cases couldn't be held on the eve of a Sabbath or on the eve of a holy day. But Jesus is being tried at night on the eve of the festival of the festival of unleavened bread. It's a, it was just about to happen that next day. And I'm not going to bog down going over all of this, but a capital trial in Jerusalem was to be held in the temple precinct, not in an individual's home, not even if it's the high priest's home. There's one biblical scholar who wrote a book about 18 times where the court violated the law in the gospel accounts of Jesus's trial. And, you know, some people have then said, you know, they dismiss the, you know, the validity of the gospel based on that, saying, well, you know, there couldn't be this many, you know, there wouldn't be this many illegal procedures taken. That just woefully underestimates human capacity for corruption. But either way, uh, what's the big deal with this trial? We have to think about that, too. Like, you know, we know that this is a dramatic turn of events, but why? Why are we here? What is it that they're looking for? Why are they they doing all of this here's the thing that you know believing yourself to be a special prophet was not a, an offense that was punishable by death within the confines of israel it might make the temple guards want to beat you but but it wasn't going to be a capital offense now being a false prophet was was an offense that was called for as punishment by death under the law of moses but not under roman law And that's the thing we have to keep in mind in all of this, that the shadow of Rome is over everything that takes place here. Rome has the final say in this. The, the, you know, they've got, they've got laws and things. They, they could, we know from other accounts in Acts, they could have dragged him out and stoned him in the public square, but we still have the issue of there being public opinion on Jesus' side 
from the large group of Galileans that came into Jerusalem at that time. So clearly they don't want to do that. They want to do something here that, that Rome is going to be okay with. And so in, in order for Jesus to be put to death in a way that is going to you know, extricate the religious leaders from this, they had to pin the title of Messiah on him. That was a claim of being a king who would have been a rival to Caesar. And that was punishable by death for the Romans. And so that was the end goal of this trial. So they even start with that. They start right off the bat asking, are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed king? And notice that Jesus doesn't take the bait on that question, but he reframes everything. First, he points out that they're not really interested in a fair trial in all of this. You know, they don't care what answers he's going to give. They're not going to answer any of his questions that he may have. They've already made their evaluation and their judgment of him. All they need is the the stuff that they can take to Rome. So Jesus doesn't engage in a pointless argument with people who aren't interested, you know, in discovery. But then Jesus turns the tables. And that's the part. That's the part that gets you. Jesus turns the tables in this and we realize with a chill that those who thought they were the judges in this trial are actually the defendants and they don't even know it. Jesus describes himself as the son of man who from that point on is seated in the place of power at God's right hand. Now that comes straight out of Daniel chapter 7 where the prophet Daniel, he saw a forecast of where the whole human story was going and he saw this messianic figure that he called the son of man who's elevated up to be at the right hand of God who basically establishes God's reign and rule bringing heaven to earth. And I'm sure that the theologians in the room when Jesus is speaking this knew exactly what he was asserting or alluding to, even though he doesn't use the specific title Messiah. They knew that's what he was claiming in that statement. And so from their side, that's a win. They got him. They got what they need here. But the irony of those who think they hold the power and who really holds the power in this section is profound because it's not something that is discernible on the surface events that are unfolding in other words something's happening that nobody in the room can see something deep something chilling is taking place and they don't even know it in essence jesus is saying no matter what your ruling is from this court it doesn't change god's ruling it doesn't change who i am In other words, it doesn't matter how the Sanhedrin evaluated Jesus because the only evaluation that mattered then and that matters now is God's. And I believe Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin provides us with an example to follow. Jesus didn't get baited into pointless arguments to try to get them to see things his way or to change their minds about who he is or how valuable he is. He rested in heaven's perspective on this. And granted, there are deep Christological implications all through this exchange. The titles like son of man and the right hand of power and the son of God. It's all language trying to convey to us that Jesus is more than just a prophet. This is more than just a a human activity or event taking place here. Jesus is identifying himself as something more than anyone had expected. 
But it also provides us with an important example to follow in this. Instead of getting into pointless arguments, wherever that may, whatever platform that may be, either person to person or all the various ways in which we can do that, instead of getting into pointless arguments about our faith or how people should view us or assess us, I think the challenge here is that in trying times, let's fully trust in God's evaluation of us. None of us want to be misunderstood. I mean, you know, who's going to volunteer sign away? I'd like to be misunderstood and disliked for no reason. No, nobody likes to be treated unfairly. We don't want to be dismissed because of our convictions where we put our faith. But if others evaluate us poorly or judge us inappropriately, So what? It's God's evaluation and verdict about us that that matters. And that's not to say, you know, I don't care what you think or anything like that. It's not that attitude. It's that we find confidence and calm in the knowledge of how God views us so that we're not blown back and forth by fickle human temperaments. His is the only evaluation that matters. That's why we don't have to get baited into arguments about our faith. We don't have to defend Jesus. Obviously, now the New Testament does tell us at times, be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you about your faith. But giving an answer, somebody asking you, you know, how come you're so happy when everything else is so miserable? That's a little bit different than going out and, and starting an argument or even engaging in an argument over things that are basically unprovable. There are issues of the heart. There are issues of faith that we've come to, to embrace. And, and listen, if we think that it's our job to try to defend Jesus, man, that's, I mean, here's the thing. A person's rejection of Jesus does not alter his lordship one iota. It doesn't change a thing about him. He's not called us to get in the position of trying to defend him or defend his reputation for that matter. But this also applies to ourselves. We don't need to try and and win the court of people's opinions uh, about us because what God thinks about us is ultimately what is true about us. And we want to deal with what's true, what what is reality. How God evaluates us is who we really are. And of course, qualifying this doesn't mean that if people reject us because we're behaving badly, you know, you know, everybody rejects me because, you know, I'm constantly punching people in the face. Well, you know, that's <laughs> cause and effect. I mean, that's, that's what that's all about. But this is about seeing ourselves and the ultimate truth of who we are based on God's assessment of us. That's what we base our identity on, not the, the temperamental winds of someone else's opinion about us. We base our, our identity on what God thinks of us. And if you're like me, you're thinking, well, that's the whole problem, Rob. <laughs> I'm worried about what God thinks about me. Okay, okay, I get that. That makes sense. So who does God say we are as those who follow him? How does God define you? How does God define me? Well, we can go to his... Yeah, that's... We, I, listen, we're called his children in John 1, his friends in John 15. He calls us his free people 
in Romans 6, the accepted and the beloved in Ephesians 1. We're called more than conquerors in Romans 8. He calls us a new creation, a new humanity in 2 Corinthians 5. Co-heirs with Christ in Ephesians 4. His workmanship in Ephesians 2. And all through his word, he calls us holy and alive and light and redeemed. And best of all, he calls us loved. I am loved by God. We are loved by God, our Creator. Let anyone think what they will about me. I am loved by God. That's what I know. That's what I build my identity on. Who are you? Who are you? You are loved by God. We know who we are because we know what God thinks of us. We are loved. And that's all that matters. That's ultimately where reality is found. We want to we find something to build our identity on. That's the identity. You are loved by God. And knowing that releases us from the pressure and the bondage of getting everyone to agree with us or even like us. We know who we are. We know we, who we belong to. We know where we're going. And with that secured in our estimation of our own personal identity, we can do anything. We can overcome anything because we're loved. So when we're facing trying times, let's stick close to Jesus. Let's stick with his values of peacemaking and meekness and extending his love because we remember who we are. Who are you? Believe that. Believe that. It'll change everything. I promise you. Right on? All right. Father, uh, will you guys stand up with me? Father, we just ask you to, to, to reinforce this truth in our lives and our hearts. Lord, you know what kind of a world it is where we've forgotten you. And you know how difficult it can be to navigate the treacherous waters of interaction with others of difficult circumstances and the trials that we face. Father, you know us. But, but even like with Peter, who fell short of what he could have been in that moment, you still look at us. You still love us. Help us find encouragement in that. Help us to find strengthening and stability in that as we go and we represent your goodness to the world around us and the world where we've been placed. Guide us and lead us as your people, as your children. Be with us and enable us to overcome as conquerors. Conquerors in that we are aware of who we are. I pray that for all of us, Father, and I ask you to accomplish this by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemies till all my fears
our testimony when all is said and done when all the dust clears that's who we are we are your children help us believe that father help us believe that listen real quick before we go i just learned this morning dave wilbanks he's been a part of this community for years and years been a you know very helpful part 
uh, among us, and his mom passed away unexpectedly last night. I'd just like us to pray for his family. Uh, so, Father, we pray for Dave and all of his family uh, as they navigate through the process of their grief right now. We thank you, Lord, that we know where his mom is, that she's safe with you. But we just pray that your comfort and your strength and your, your presence is there to bless and help them uh, through this time. Give them peace and grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's uh, speak this blessing on each other. If you need prayer for anything, come on up. We'd love to pray with you and see what God will do. Uh, But let's say this together. May Christ be a light to illumine and guide you. Christ be a shield to overshadow you. Christ be under you. Christ be over you. Christ beside you, on your left and on your right, both in this world and the one to come. Go in peace, you children of God.